0: What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gilner, and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to baseballcloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On this episode, I interview Darren Finster, minor league outfield and base running coordinator for the Boston Red Sox. Being in this position gives Darren the opportunity to work with many players throughout the Red Sox organization on both of these aspects. And on the show, Darren and I discuss how his former coach at Rutgers University got him interested in being a baseball coach. But he also shares the elements that make base running and being an outfielder very important, and what it takes to get better as not only a baseball player, but as a coach. You're going to love this episode, and here is Darren Finster. Darren, welcome to the show.
1: Jonathan, thanks a lot for having me.
0: Of course, of course, and I am so excited to get to record with you today, and I've been looking forward with for this conversation for a, a while now and ever since we first connected. And I've heard you on a couple of different podcasts, and I've, I've read several of your articles that you do for Team USA. So I know that you're a perfect fit for the show, and I, I'm I'm ready to dig in. Awesome, man. Let's do it. Well, let's, let's start with, if you don't mind, just giving us a little bit of a baseball background and why you decided to get into coaching. So for our listeners who may not know you as well as I do, that just gives them a little bit of context.
1: Well, I guess we can start from where I am now and kind of, kind of work our way, way back a little bit. Right sure. right now I'm the uh, outfield and base running coordinator for the Red Sox on the minor league level, which essentially means that I'm responsible for, you know, what we're doing with regard to developing our outfielders and what we're going to do on an approach to base running. And, um, you know, this is my eighth year with the Red Sox. And, uh, how I got here is, is a pretty, you know, I guess everybody has their own journey and everybody has their own path and mine, I guess it's somewhat unique. Everybody's is unique, but I actually never wanted to be a coach and I never envisioned myself as a coach. My background prior to getting into coaching was that uh, of a player. And, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I fell in love with the game in my backyard playing, uh, you know, with, you know, my brothers, my dad, my friends. And at some point, I don't know when, probably at some point you know, watching a game on TV, I said, Hey, I want to be a major league baseball player. And like just about every other kid at one point or another, that dream remains just a dream. And for me, it became a goal. And as I kind of moved throughout high school and had an opportunity to play in college at Rutgers university in New Jersey, where I would meet the guy who is the reason why I'm a coach, uh, the head, the head coach, uh, was a guy by the name of Fred Hill, and um, I graduated high school in 1996 and went to Rutgers uh, my freshman year uh, that fall. And my first season was 1997. Mm-hmm. And I went there as a, you know, your classic good field, no hit middle infielder. Okay. And I was fortunate because Coach Hill was your you know, prototypical old school guy. He was in his 60s who valued defense up the middle and he saw that you know, I could feel the baseball pretty well, and he figured, all right, well, uh, whatever you give us offensively will be a bonus. But I know that you'll be able to secure us at the middle. And uh, my glove is what got me into the lineup from day one, and slowly but surely, my bat developed to the point where I actually left Rutgers as the all-time career hits leader, right. which I think that's what a lot of people will look at back if you're looking at the the university's record books. But I, you know, will always consider myself someone who was a defensive player who the bat came around later. And because the bat came around, I was fortunate enough to uh, get drafted by the Kansas city Royals uh, in the year 2000. After my senior season, I spent six years in the minor leagues with the Royals. And after the 2004 season, which was my best season overall, offensively, I'd kind of turned into, you know, that super utility everyday sort of a player, And I was invited to major league spring training for 2005. And with a week left to go in camp, I had jumped for a ball like I had done a million times, came down. My leg went one way, my knee went the other, and my season was done before it even started. I had blown out my knee and suffered a tibial plateau fracture and, uh, along with some cartilage damage. And I wound up living in Arizona in all of 2005 and rehabbing every day at our facility and, not for a second did I ever think that I was never going to play again. I just looked at it as, you know, a slight bump in the road. And I went back to spring training in 2006. And I was medically cleared, but was not the same player that I was prior to getting hurt. And I was released with two days left to go in spring training. And it was completely blindsided me. And I didn't have a plan B. And I had always thought that, I was just going to be a major league player and, you know, ride off into the sunset at the age of 40. And, um, God had a very fun way of, you know, kind of knocking that plan down and kind of sending me back home to New Jersey at the age of 26 or 27, moving in with my mom and dad in an over 55 community at 26 or 27. So when you're doing that, you know, you kind of have to figure out your, the rest of your life relatively quickly. But for me, it was, pretty tough because I didn't have the rest of my life. Like I didn't have anything that I wanted to do other than be a player. And that part of my life had ended. So the coach that I played for at Rutgers coach, Hill, he has been like, had been like a second father to me. And he was probably the second person I called after I told my, my folks that I had gotten released. And he said, well, do you want to get into coaching? You know, I have no idea. I really don't have any interest in anything. He's like, well, I think you'd you'd be pretty good at it. And, you know, if you have an interest in it, so this was uh, in late March or early April of 2006. And if there was an interest in mine, that he would create the director of baseball ops position specifically for me and add me to his staff. And I said, you know what? I have nothing else going on, so might as well do this for the next couple months for the rest of their season. And I was familiar with the group of players that was there. I'd work out at Rutgers during the off seasons And that group of players who was there, who was at Rutgers right after I got released, headlined by Todd Frazier, but there were a ton of other guys who I had a connection with because, you know, I I had known them just from from my off seasons of working out there. And they really made me feel like I could have an impact on them as players in the same way that many coaches had an impact on, on me. And that first those first couple months in that group and coach Hill and the staff that was at Rutgers, like they really, they gave me a second life in the game saying, Hey, you know what? Playing is by far the best and nothing's ever going to be able to come- compare to that. And this might not be a bad second life in the game. And for coach Hill to have that wherewithal to see something in me before I was able to see it in myself or even be ready to see it in myself just speaks to the volume of, you know, his ability to kind of read people and, you know work off of a relationship that he had built from, you know, about 10 years prior. Uh-huh. So, in this second part of my life, I'm like I played for Coach Hill when he was in his 60s and now I was coaching under him when he was in his 70s. So, I saw a very natural transition from potentially being a player into getting my feet wet as a coach to hopefully being in a position to take over the program when the day came that he decided to retire, which, you know, obviously in his 70s was within the near future within a number of years not decades and as i was there our program went from being the premier program in the northeast to kind of a middle of the pack program with you know in in the big east and i had kind of realized that this position of taking over the program might you know might not be in the card so not only would i potentially be out of a job if the next guy didn't keep me on i potentially you know would be out of baseball entirely and I said, you know what, like, I've had a great run, like, you know, let me, uh, let me take a look. And, you know, I was making, I think, $27,000 at the time with mm-hmm. a mortgage to pay. I don't have no idea how I was able to do it at that point, living in New Jersey. But, you know, looking back, I think he just figured it out. And so I was ready to move on with my life and actually had about a six week period in the summer of 2011 when I was interviewing for medical device sales jobs. And I left these jobs thinking three things. Number one, that number I could absolutely do these jobs. Number two, it would be what for me would be life-changing money at the time, having been making $27,000 a year. And the third part was the really the deciding factor to stop pursuing those. And it was the fact that I just didn't care. I had no, no passion for being in an operating room or being around medicine. My passion was in the game. So I pumped the brakes on getting out of the game and I actually just started networking with people with affiliated teams who I had relationships with and I happened to be in the right place at the right time and was in with the right people with the Red Sox and on December 23rd of 2011 they offered me a position to to come on board as a hitting coach in A-ball and did that for a year and then managed rookie ball the following year then managed A-ball for four years then managed double A last year to the point where this year I'm in a new role as the outfield and base running coordinator. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great, been a incredible, an incredible journey, but not one that I planned by any sense of the word. Sure.
0: No, I love that. And I love to get to hear your background because it definitely sounds like that's why you're so passionate about coaching now. It's because you had such great influences. And so how did you go from being a stellar infielder to the outfield coordinator? And what was that process like?
1: Well, well, that, that's, that's actually... A funny story because we had some some movement within our de- department at the end of last season, and I wound up interviewing for a, a different position within our organization that I didn't get. And when the farm director decided to give me a call to let me know, he he basically said, "Hey, I checked all the boxes that they were looking for, but at the end of the day." You know, they wanted a different set of eyes from someone who has not been in the organization who would give us a different perspective on some different things in the game. But, you know, we still want you, you know, we still think very highly of you. We consider you a leader and we want to get you, you know, into a more of a leadership position. So I was thinking more down the road because, you know, this one didn't work through. And then he stopped. He's like, we'd actually like to offer you the outfield and base running Coordinator job, which had just become open. Awesome. And I think my exact response was, "You you do know that I'm an infield guy, right?" And you know, half jokingly, but I know he did. And he said, "Yeah, but we've gotten to know you over the last seven years, and we know how you are." I mean, that, and I guess in a complimentary way, in terms of the way that I really dive into dive into the job, and we know that you'll do the same the same kind of prep and you'll have the same energy for the outfield stuff as you have, you know, for the managerial stuff or the infield stuff, when that was your responsibility for the hitting stuff. And, you know, we think it's going to be a seamless transition. The base running stuff has always been something that I've been really passionate about because it's a very, you know, I think it's a lost and neglected part of the game. And I do believe that when you get guys who actually care about base running, that you're creating a really good culture of complete players. Mm -hmm. So that one was a natural fit. And looking back now having, you know, just kind of finishing up this first year of, of doing it where I didn't know exactly what I was getting into. I'm really grateful for the opportunity that I was forced to get out of my comfort zone and entertain something that I was not proficient in. And it forced me to learn about a part of the game that, you know, I knew the basics, but didn't know the details. And now I feel like I could dissect that part of the game as well as, you know, the infield side of things that, you know, I've been doing my whole life. And mm-hmm. it's just made me a, a much more well-rounded coach, not not to mention, you know, putting me in, in touch with a different group of players who I didn't have as close a relationship with just by virtue of where they played.
0: That's really neat. And I, I love that, that side of it, just the divergent side of being able to see everything from a lens of, hey, I've coached that before. And we may not have even played that position at all, but it gives us an outside perspective on things to look for things that maybe like you you mentioned earlier about the organization wanting a different set of eyes on this and they hired they did that with you by hiring you as an outfield guy because it gave you a fresh perspective on what the outfielders were doing because you had to look at it from a different lens
1: yeah there's no question about it i think that for me was was the biggest thing of just you know being forced to learn something new and being forced to grow and like in a very similar way that you know coach hill you know, on, on the big picture thought, you know, saw something in me and said that, Hey, you know, I think you'd be a pretty good coach. You know, we have a lot of really smart and passionate baseball people in our organization. And for, for them to see my potential in a role that, you know, I really was not an expert in, in by any means for mm-hmm. them to say, Hey, we think that you can become one. I think, you know, that's as big of a value in, in leadership as anything else is not just, you know, being able to manage it, manage people and like, get them to follow you, but actually to see stuff in them before they are, are able to see it in themselves. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to have that experience a number of times in my life.
0: Sure. And, you know, something that, that I love to do as well as base running, because I, I think it's kind of like the special teams of baseball. It's something that can win or lose your games, but at the same time, it's something that probably isn't practiced enough. And it's one of those, it's like, oh, they're 90 feet, just get to the next one. Well, it's a little bit different than that, but... Let's discuss some different ideas that you have, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but what are some ways, or what are some different things, where should we start, what are some, you're, you know, it's, it's a passion of yours, so we could probably spend the entire podcast talking about it, which would be <laughs> fine with me, but at the same time, I, you know, I just want to hear your thoughts on how can we do base running better?
1: So, base running, I think people just look at in the general term of running hard around the bases. And it is so much more than that. The entire skill begins with effort. Without effort, you're not going to have impact base runners, and that has nothing to do with being fast. It just means you know you're running hard and you're putting pressure on the defense and you're giving yourself a chance to get an extra base or to to score an extra run or to beat a force play. But base running, you know, I describe it on day one of spring training when I have the whole group together. I describe it as a skill just like every other skill in the game where guys spend countless hours in the cage perfecting their swing. They spend countless hours out on the field, perfecting their defensive ability. And we don't have countless hours to work on base running in the same way, just because of the nature of the game and the way that your days are set up. But the approach can be very, very similar in terms of the things that separate good base runners from bad base runners from impact base runners. And like I said, Running hard is is the start of it, but the details that we've talked about throughout the course of the year that are difference makers are so, so minute that we're getting guys in a mindset of like thinking about these tiny little things that we know once they're in that mindset, the big things take care of themselves. For instance, I never realized how big of a deal it was how guys go from home to first in terms of the path down the line. Now, everybody knows that on a ground ball that stays on the infield, you run straight through the base and you hit the front part of the base. But when you have that ball that gets through and a ball to the outfield, you know, a ball in the air off the bat, so many guys have indirect routes or they do the question mark that a guy, it might be a bang, bang play at second base. And a guy might get thrown out and everybody thinks they get thrown out on that very last second, but they get thrown out because of what happens in between home and first. And guys don't think about the route that they go to take from home to first based on what the ball is doing. And we talk about that sort of thing. Um, We talk about stuff like where you take your lead, like which part of the base we take our lead from, because it makes a difference from the back corner or from the front corner. Knowing your steps to take it consistently, timing out your secondary, where you are relative to the baseline in your lead, how to get a read, learning how to see windows for extra bases when the depth of the ball might not necessarily allow you to. So we're opening up guys, eyes to things that on the amateur level and even at very some very high profile college programs like isn't even in the equation. And by virtue of the six months of a season, uh, going back to the start of spring training, the constant repetitiveness of this, you know, they do not get it after a week, they do not get it after a month, but by the end of the year, when they're constantly hearing the same message and bring brought to their attention the same things, they slowly but surely start picking things up. And that's one of the really cool things to see when I'm not specifically with one team for the entire year and you're kind of bouncing from affiliate to affiliate. You're able to see guys develop the skills that help them make better decisions on the bases because at the end of the day, base running is far more about the decision than it is about whether or not a guy is out or safe. So many times Mm -hmm. coaches and players are blinded by the out or the safe thinking if I'm safe, it's a good play. If I'm out, it's a bad play. And that couldn't be further from the truth where we just talked to our first year player group who's down here. And I made it a point to tell them that it's okay to make outs on the bases. In fact, we need to make outs on the bases because teams that play it safe, that never make it out on the base, they don't take chances and teams that don't take chances aren't giving themselves opportunities to score extra runs, to stay out of double plays to force errors, whatever it is. And, you know, that's a part of the game. And I think that is something that's really, really important to get through to players because if you're just solely judging on a, a player on whether or not they're out or safe, they're going to be terrified to make it out. Right. Uh, and half the time we're commending players for making outs as much as they are, you know, as as much as we'll come down on a player, even when they're safe because the decision was bad and they just, you know, the the opposing team just didn't execute play.
0: No, I like that a lot, and I, I'm right there with you. I, it's We preach aggressiveness a lot, but most of the base running drills that we see or most of the base running drills that most people do don't really promote that. It's more, I mean, whenever I was playing, I remember how to break down and look to your right. That's important. Or what part of the bag to get to. That's important. But I really like that that's more of a block training model. And I I know you're familiar with that too. And for our listeners, that's Mm -hmm. more of a, Hey, let's get as many reps as we can doing this one thing versus base running is completely random. And, you know, one of my favorite, favorite things, and this could go back to your base running and outfield stuff. We, we do a drill called all doubles an all double scrimmage where every ball that's hit to the Mm -hmm. outfield, you have to go two bases. And it not only helps the outfielders to get a better job of getting to the ball and getting it in, but also to uh, reinforce that aggressiveness. And the caveat to that is if they're out at the second base, we just send them back to first. Because then they just, Mm -hmm. you're preaching aggressiveness, and then they can start to test on when or not they should go. The outfielders are having to try and decide which bases to go to. And it's really good because those are little things in a game that we all gripe about but it's not practiced enough, especially on the amateur level. Mm-hmm. It may be different on the pro side, but do you guys have anything that you do to help them with those decisions? I mean, maybe going over a video, but for for drills for us that we can steal from you?
1: Well, I'm just actually taking, taking in the all doubles idea, and we have about two weeks left out here down in trucks and we may have to break that one out because oh, I absolutely love awesome. the idea. It's awesome. So there's this one one drill that or circuit, whatever you want to call it. I call it head on the swivel, where if you have – 15 guys on your team. You have a group at first, a group at second, and a group at home. And there's five guys at each group and you know, one guy is up at a time, and the third base coach is running the drill. So head on a swivel, you know, for years you hear and you're running the bases, run with your head down or run with your head up. But the reality is that your head needs to be on a swivel. You need to be able to see the ball, you need to to see the base, you need to be able to pick up the runner in front of you, you need to pick up the coach so there are so many different elements like you said that are that are completely variable play to play and this is a way where you can manipulate the drill however you want so sure. when i say the third base coach runs a drill so the first group that's up they they all take their secondary lead and they get around so if the third base coach sends the that runner from second now the runner from first has to pick up the that runner in front of him he has to pick up the coach because there are times when a hard base hit to the outfield, you can't send You can't just assume you're going to go first to third. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of those in-game type elements that are going to happen. The things that you're going to need to look for. So our entire focus is, is what we're looking at the things that we're looking at in order to, so that we're not running up on a guy or we're not running through a stop sign, you know, mental errors that shouldn't happen in a game, but do because guys aren't looking at the things that they need to. And so we'll, we'll run through that where everybody gets, one rep at each spot and it probably takes, you know, not even 10 minutes. And, you know, we kind of plan those days on days where our strength and conditioning guys need, need a little bit of a conditioning day. Mm-hmm. So when it's done right, you're doing it at a game speed and guys are, are, are getting a game type rep while getting their conditioning. And, and it works out really well, especially the more you're able to do it. So that's, that's one thing that, that we've done a number of times okay. when it comes to just jumps off of a secondary lead. The timing of that is vital, where if you're too early, your feet are almost in cement and you stop and you have to get going again. So we'll take reps during batting practice where we do not care about the read. The only thing that we're working on is our timing of our secondary lead to touchdown just on contact or a split second off uh, after contact so that they can get the feel of getting a great jump off the bat because that jump may be the difference between them being able to beat a force and second or not beat a force, being able to go first and third. You know, baseball is so split second and especially, you know, in this day and age in the big leagues where you have replay on everything, you know, that bang, bang play, the difference might just be how quickly we get off the blocks coming out of our secondary lead. So something as detailed as how we time out our secondary lead is something that we consciously work on and, and work on quite a bit.
0: No, oh, that's really good. And as you were talking about I- we do another one that's called 21 ounce and I'm I'm sure that our listeners are familiar and I'm sure you are too, but that's another one that we can work in some base running in. And I know a lot of, a lot of coaches have started to put base running at the very front of practice. And that's, that's way Mm -hmm. different from whenever I was playing because it was the last thing we used it for conditioning and we hated it. So it's also something that, Mm -hmm. that that's, that's if we want it to be important and it's important to us, which it should be, putting it at at the very first of practice, I think is a great idea. And I mean, it's just, it makes a world of difference. I mean, you, if you add a couple of runs each year, just because of good base running, I mean, it's so worth it.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that because that's actually exactly what we did this spring training. um, When our field coordinator was starting to put together the schedule, He reached out to everyone and said, Hey, is there anything that you, you would like to have done? And I'm like, I really, I only would like this one thing. And here's why I said, If we can start every single day of spring training with a 10 to 15 minute block where the entire camp is doing base running. And this is after they, they get loose before they even pick up a ball. Number one, it marks, like you said, the importance that, Hey, this is the first thing that we're working on. Mm -hmm. And two, there's also the element of, you know, a player's attention span is always going to be at its height at the very beginning of, Mm -hmm. of your day. Like they're always going to care about hitting. So that could always be the last thing of your day. So we wound up doing that, where you know we had a broader. It, it might have been a broader topic, or that you know head-on a swivel type drill at the beginning, and then during batting practice, there was a base running station, whether it be at first working on our timing, at second working on our reads, at third working on our contact break, whatever it is. So they were getting two different times of base running every single day for about a six-week period leading into the start of the season, just to kind of get guys to understand, hey, base running is a big deal for us.
0: Sure. Right. And and something that I want to get into some detail, if that's okay, but so you've got multiple guys. I mean, you've got a bunch of different guys and with 10 minutes, that's not a ton of time. So how did you structure that time? Did you have them go to different bases with different coaches and have them work on a different base per day or everyone was at one, they were doing a lot of listening. You had like three lines with three bases ready to go, but just kind of take us through that if you don't mind.
1: So it all depended on what, what we had planned for the day, like just in general, not just base running. I am a huge believer in having groups small enough where guys could get as many reps as they possibly can within the time period that they can, because your traditional, like, you know, PFP, for example, mm-hmm. you have 10 minutes, you have one line and you have 12 pitchers. Oh. You know, you got guys who might be getting two or three reps max in a, sure. in a 10 minute period and to expect them to be able to make a play with, you know, the game on the line with getting that few practice reps is not realistic, so I've always I've always believed in organizing things in a manner that, you know, guys are able to get a, a ton of reps whenever possible. So, if it's more of the conditioning variety, you can get a, get away with having a longer line because the timing of it allows guys to catch their breath before they're able to go again. So, mm-hmm. like uh, for instance, if we're doing a circuit, we'll, we we might do a block circuit of home to first first to third tag up to get home, double score, score from second. And every, everybody will go one at a time, but it's not just that, Hey, we're doing that. It's like, all right, we'll give them double down the right field line. So when there you have a coach who's coaching their, their turn, you have someone who's coaching them, making sure they're touching the inside part of the base, making Mm -hmm. sure that their head is looking down the right field line, where the ball is going to be. When they're scoring from second base, we have a a coach stand at third base and it's like, okay, man on second base with two outs, boom, you got to go and pick up the coach. And we'll mix in times when, you know, the coach holds, holds a player up just to make sure that guys are, are looking and doing the thing. So it's not just getting around like that, you know, just to get, get your running in. It is very scripted with specific plays that are going to happen over the course of the season that, you know, so they're actually thinking about a situation. So that's usually how we we wind up doing the block, or it might be, you know, just a, a technique day of teaching guys literally how to take their lead, where we'll have four guys up at once and we'll teach guys how to take a lead. I mean, it's amazing that these are professional baseball players, but we teach in a manner of like almost expecting these guys know nothing. So we can't assume that they know how to take a lead. And there were times this year where I had to, you know, work with guys, at higher levels who literally didn't know how to take a lead. And that was our fault because we just assumed that they did. So it all depends on, on what you have planned for the day and batting practice. You know, our groups are no bigger than, than five guys per group. And most of them are four. So depending on which base we're working at or what kind of a record we're getting in, like, you know, over the course of a 10 or 12 minute BP group, guys can get a lot of reps in that regard as well.
0: I love that. And I use that quote all the time. Whenever I first started, my job here at union i was the freshman head coach and that was one of the first things that our head coach told me he just he said i came in griping one day about how they didn't know something or you know just a typical coach speak of gosh dang it i've told them a thousand times or whatever and it was my fault because they didn't learn it but he just said assume they know nothing assume they know nothing mm-hmm. and everything will surprise you but don't assume that they know how that they're supposed to wear a belt to practice don't assume that they know they're supposed to always have their turfs and not just slides and if they if you teach them then they'll they'll learn it and eventually they'll get it and so i i really like that and it's so funny i'm gonna have to text him after this and tell him that you're still having to do some of those similar things in pro ball which i really like but i'd also like to get into some outfield stuff and you know as you're going through this it's it's funny because i i feel like the sides maybe first baseman outfielders and base running are two of the most neglected things that we do in practice because it's like just catch a fly ball and just get to the next bag like how hard is it right but if <laughs> it, there, there are also two things that are game changers like if you have three game changers in the outfield like the major league red sox do i mean it saves you so many runs throughout the year and it's the same thing with base running how many extra runs can you get by turning a corner better or by get, making that decision quicker so let's talk a little bit about the outfield stuff and just kind of, uh, take us through your journey of, of how you went about learning it, some different things that you really like, maybe from an outside perspective or just some things that you like to do.
1: Right. So, so as you said, outfield is far more than just catching fly balls. And I think that's like the general thought of, Hey, what, what is outfield? Hey, we're just going to go shag fly balls. Like, and that's the Traditional practice of like, all right, we're just going to, we're going to hit you fly balls. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in batting practice, you're going to go shag fly balls. And the reality of what outfield play is, is you're actually, number one, you're actually going to field far more balls on the ground than you ever will on the air because just about every single base hit turns into a ground ball for an outfielder. Like, if you get, you know, if you get three or four fly balls in the outfield in one game, that is a pretty active game. But three or four, a hit is like minimal most games have 10 12 15 hits so guys are getting a, a ton of action and a ton of work out there you know the little things of like there are a lot of unsung heroes in the outfield because it's so many times all b- being an outfielder is backing up backing up a player backing up a base or backing up a throw and it's like one of those things well you do it 99 times and you know nothing happens you don't do it the 100th time that's the one time that you know, the guy's going to miss the ball or they're going to throw it away. So we have to be there every single time. And so the way that I dove into this was very similar to how we wound up uh, developing a program for our infielders over the years in terms of just breaking breaking down the position to either a single step or, you know, even eliminating all steps and focusing on what our hand is doing. And what I realized in just Looking at outfielders and understanding the, the the basics of the position is that I could break it down identically to the way that we broke down infield play, where this is something that I've just I've always been really really good at for some reason breaking down parts of the game to you know to singular steps, and we've developed what I call our outfield routine where guys start on the ground without a glove on and they they literally tap a ball back like they're playing volleyball to get a feel for working their hand through the ball. Then we you know, then we we progress to getting their gloves on, then we progress to on their feet, then we progress to taking a step and then moving our feet. And we do the same thing with balls in the air, where I'm literally underhanding a ball in the air from about ten feet away so that guys can get in the habit of catching the ball correctly with their eyes behind the ball, with their glove foot forward, setting up their feet to throw and the monotony of it actually when i first came over in 2012 and i saw the program that our infield coordinator andy fox had kind of put through, put our infielders through the first thing i thought to myself was like man like this is some really really basic stuff like can't can't these guys handle a lot more and what i saw over the course of an entire season of being consistent with that routine was incredible development that you're able to breed some really, really good habits, and there's times to focus on one or two things, and then we would move to you know a short drill period where it's not two guys ten feet away. It might be a short fungo where we're working on specifically just opening up on the ball, and then it may be a longer drill or 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 working live during batting practice where those that live work during BP that's the most important time for our outfielders because there's not a better rep that anybody can get than a rep during BP. That's as close to a game rep as you can possibly get. And that's our opportunity to kind of put everything together. Like Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be thinking about the mechanics of your feet in the outfield or, you know, how you're setting up your pre-pitch any more than you should be thinking about the mechanics of your swing when you hit. So we have, we have different segments of our days that force, a certain focus on a certain thing with the opportunity to progress into them being able to put it all together. And one day of it, you know, does very, very little, but the 1% better idea over the course of an entire season, it is incredible what consistent focus can produce over the course of someone's career when they go about it the right way.
0: No, no doubt. No doubt. And I, you know, I'm guilty of doing creative drills, which have their time and place, but I'm I mean, it's also, I think it's got to be a mix of both. And that's something that we've tried to do this fall and something that I've written about lately because we're in a, we're in a time of sensationalism, but also simple wins, you know, And, and simple wins and doing, you know, like you talked about the compound effect of getting a little bit better at something every single day. And especially if we're trying to change something or get better at something, we have to start somewhere and we have to build a foundation and to continue to grow from there. And that's something that, you know, it, it, it was something that took a lot of time this offseason to figure out what of the simple things that we wanted to be really good at, which sounds like your outfield progression stuff too, which is really cool. I, you know, I'm a firm believer that there is time and place for being creative and, and random practice is, is awesome. But if we go too far on too simple, then it, we're not getting any better. And if we go too complex, then the players are just spinning in their heads and they're not getting any better. And so it's just. It's always a delicate balance. If And I mean, I, I feel like that's something similar to what you're saying. Am I on the right track?
1: I think balance is, is the key word and sure. not just with outfield play, but just just in general. I think never more than we have now, like this game has turned into very much a game of extremes with the amount of information that is out there with the amount of people that are making living, making mm-hmm. a living, you know, by selling a specific type of training or w- whatever the case may be, a lot of people are putting the game in a vacuum and they're making the always and nevers to right. the game. And for me, you have to take bits and pieces of everything. Like the guy, you know, the, uh, I know a lot of old school guys and, you know, baseball lifers are really getting disrespected in the sense that, that, that classic, Hey, this is what we've always done. So the people who kind of downgrade those guys, because, Hey, we're doing it this way because this is how we do it. Now that's not a reason to do something just because you've always done it. But if something works, it works. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it was created yesterday using all kinds of the technology that's available today, or if it was developed 50 years ago. I think when you're talking about getting players better, coaches have to understand what their strengths are and how they can best get through to their players. And if that means you're doing something that you've been doing for years, because it works do it because that's far better and far more impactful than trying something because that this is today's new age term or whatever the next thing that's coming out. Hey, we get, we always have to be on top of things. Like, no, you, you have to do what you need to do in order to get your players and some people can adapt with the times with the best of them that with the newest technologies, they can just seamlessly move along. Whereas it may be for as easy as that is like that person may have trouble with the foundational stuff that's been around for the test of time. And so the balance of being able to blend the old with the new, the balance of being able to find exactly what your players need, when they need it and how to, how to implement it with them. Like that for me is what's going to make a great coach, not someone who, Hey, he's got this great resume, but you know, is not in touch with today's player or not someone who, you know, can, can use words that I can't even pronounce, but can't simplify in a way that anybody else can understand. Right. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the state of the game today where like there's definitely a disconnect between, you know, different, different groups of people and different groups of coaches. And it doesn't need to be like that. And it's one thing that is, you know, definitely a frustrating point for a lot of people because you know, like we're all in the game because we love the game, Mm -hmm. not because we want to be knocking one guy out or the other guy out. And the way that you're able to, you know, keep everybody in and everybody working together is like you said, is finding a balance.
0: Right. And I think that that it all comes down to being the art of coaching. And for me, I, I think that being a teacher at heart is a key to that. I mean, we, we haven't taught until they've learned and that's, that's we've got to know we've got to know the player we've got to know our audience we've got to know the other coaches that we're talking to and we've got to communicate with them well and a lot of that comes from having a growth mindset and being a good communicator but also to having some emotional intelligence and having some just some feel of the situation as well and and all of that encompasses the art of coaching i think and that's something that we're all continuing to learn on a daily basis because people change we all change times change research changes but I think it's also that's why the art of coaching is so hard because it's we're in a constant state of change and trying to figure out, like you said, the balance of okay this has always worked but is it going to continue to work? Why does it work? Versus this is a really cool drill and this may help a couple of players but it may not help them all. So how do I use it for the the couple? And you know that's that's always a difficult balance. But without an effort of getting on both of our soapboxes, I'm sure about the art of coaching. <laughs> Let's talk about how we can all get better. And you work with some amateur players on with USA Baseball, and you're on Twitter, so you see different social media posts and different uh, things that people are doing, and, and you're working with players with USA Baseball on an amateur level. But how can we get better? And you, you also, you mentioned that several of your guys that, that are working, that you're working with base running, have trouble with leads. And I mean, it, it's something that that should not happen once they get to you, and, and it's something that we can do better, obviously, is making sure we teach those fine fundamentals, but just as a, I know this is kind of a blanket statement, but how can we as an amateur level, how can we get better?
1: I have a very, very simple answer for you, and that is by watching baseball. Okay, You'd be amazed at how many players are really, really good at playing baseball, but have very little interest or even background in watching baseball when they're not playing it, and it's not necessarily a, a dig on them. That's just I think a nature of you know where we are in present day, where you know I remember as a kid collecting the baseball cards, going to baseball camps, uh, watching baseball games on TV, going to a high school baseball game. You know, th- like baseball was just something that I loved, and there were plenty of options of ways that I could. Be around it when I wasn't playing it. You know, I grew up, I was born in 1978, so I grew up in the 80s. And, you know, it's a much different, much different time with people who have so many other options than to, you know, sit around and watch a baseball game or to go to a baseball game. But I've said this many, many times that in this day and age, players may be more talented than they've ever been in terms of just the skills that are required to be a really good baseball player, Mm -hmm. but never before have guys known less in terms of how to play the game. And that gap is for me, a byproduct of players not watching the game nearly as much as they probably did, you know, in the past. And the way that people train, like, uh, yeah, I like to use the expression that maybe there should be less training and more playing where it's very easy travel programs. There are a lot of good ones out there. Private instruction. There are a lot of good ones out there. But at the end of the day, a lot of these programs, like they are, they're businesses and their job is to make money. You know, they may say that they're in it for the kids, but I think anybody with common sense knows that if you have a business, you have to find a way to bring money in to, you know, to to run that business and to keep it going. And so much of the way that people train is not reality with how the game actually works. Like you could develop the most picturesque mechanically perfect swing in the history of baseball in a cage off of a tee, off of front toss, off of batting practice, off of of the machine. But the reality of hitting in a game is nothing like that. There are different situations. There are different pitches. There are different pitch sequences that create variability that is incredibly hard to, to train for. Mm -hmm. And I think that variability when the game comes around, they're used to training in a way where it's building confidence over because they're going through success, success, building confidence, confidence. And then all of a sudden, this is all done in a cage in an off season without playing games, without facing live pitching. And then they get to a game and they fail and they don't have anything to fall back to because you know they've been training in a way that's not realistic to what the game really is. Learning the showcasing the tournaments, like – I feel like gone are the days of just like playing in a league in your County where you play 20 games in a year with the same group of players in the same area. And like, that's where you, and you, and you actually practice not train for your individually, but like actually practice and you learn the game. And I think that is just a product of, you know, the times we live in. And so rather than complain about what players can't do or, you know, what they need to be better at, like, that's our job, okay, we, we've we learned of their deficiencies, like, let's figure out ways that we can help kind of bridge that gap. So, for instance, you know, in going throughout our organization this year, from AAA all the way down to the Dominican and spending a couple weeks in the big leagues, one thing that was blatantly clear was how game awareness is something that very few players have. And it's something that I feel like was far more common just five years ago. And the outlier 10 years ago, 15 years ago was the guy who didn't have game awareness. Now the outlier is the kid who does. So from our perspective is that we're just starting to, you know, for instance, show guys videos of one or two plays where, there was some thought involved that it was like, Hey, well, that was an above average play because they had to make a decision that was not necessarily right in front of them, or they had to anticipate something that was going to happen. Something that's just not obvious that we want to get our players in because they just play the game and they don't necessarily think the game. And I think if there were ways that we could implement that, you know, before they get to us, and these are professionals, mind you. So I can only imagine what it's like on the amateur level as where they're into this showcasing and training mode, but very few people get into pro ball with like, man, like this this guy's really got some a, a really good feel for the game and makes some good decisions because he has a sense for what's
0: going on. I'm right there with you, and you know another interesting <laughs> aspect of your job and your career is you've gotten to manage, you've gotten to do some different things within the organization, and. And as a manager, you've got a lot of different players from different backgrounds from all over the world. So how would you go about communication to players that not only come from different parts of the world, different parts of the country, but also speak different languages?
1: So that's a very challenging one. And when I originally got promoted to manage in the GCL after the 2012 season one of my biggest concerns was that I didn't speak Spanish. And our farm director, you know, assured me that, you know, I'd have plenty of people on staff would be able to communicate to the players, but I didn't, I didn't want to rely on other people to talk to players when I wanted to. So just from my own perspective, I, I took about two or three levels of Rosetta Stone to get basic Spanish understanding to the point where I feel like at this point, I'm at least conversational with guys. And if there's yeah. something serious that needs to be addressed, then then I'll make sure nothing will get lost in translation. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you this, that like even if you have the worst Spanish on earth, even if it's not even close to being Spanish, guys from different cultures appreciate more than anything just the fact that you're trying because it shows that you actually care about connecting with someone who's not from where you're from. And that's one element of the communication side. Another element is just figuring out how guys tick. And for all intents and purposes, they're different languages. You have guys who you know, you could get on pretty hard and they're going to respond. If you get on someone the same way, you may lose them because their personality is one that you have to kind of handle with kid gloves. And, you know, today's society might call that kid soft, but at the end of the day, like that kid is still your player. Mm-hmm. And if you're in it to try to get your players better, you have to figure out a way to get through to that kid. Some guys learn by simply you tell them something and they do it. They're able to process in that manner. They have that kind of aptitude. Other people need to see exactly what you're talking about. Other people need to feel what you're talking about. And I think learning those personalities, learning their learning habits, you know, just making an effort to show guys that, hey, like I'm trying to individualize this t- for you so that you can do it. That builds a connection that allows you to actually have the impact. So there are a lot of different elements to communication that are paramount when it comes to being able to coach your players successfully. And forming that relationship through communication is where it all
0: starts. Right. I'm I'm right there with you. <laughs> and I think our listeners know that I've been on a journey to learn Spanish this year. And I, I started in January and about fifty percent of our population at Union is Hispanic or Spanish speaking, and it's just like, and I'll always preface it by, "Can I try?" Because I'll, you know, you hear them speaking Spanish, and can I try some Spanish on you every now and then? Like just it, and getting over the fear of embarrassment, I think is the biggest thing for me, like, and and for a lot of people too, because for them, especially with with, we call them newcomers of newcomers to the country that have trouble speaking english or speak very very little english the first thing that they want to do is like be really quiet and not say anything and it's the same thing for us or for me especially when trying to learn a new language is i would rather like not say anything for fear of embarrassment but it has definitely developed a connection with the kids that, that i've done that with because a lot of them that's their first language and so it's been in, an interesting journey for me, and I've had to get over that. And it's been embarrassing at times that I've said some stupid things. But, but it's just yeah. it's part of the process. And and like you mentioned, they see that they see you trying to make that connection and going a really like really in depth of trying to get to know them on a deeper level. And I think that's huge.
1: One thing that I've done multiple times is when I speak Spanish, like I always make a deal with guys: I'm like, hey, if I don't say something right, you tell me what the right way is to say it. And if you don't say something right in English, I'll help you. Mm -hmm. And guys love that. They absolutely love that. And, you know, I have no shame, so I have no problem making fun of myself when I say something wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think when they see that you're able to laugh at yourself, when you, when you screw something up, I think it kind of lets our guard down a little bit saying, Hey, it's, you know, it's okay for you to not be able to speak like perfect English or perfect Spanish.
0: Right. And again, it it comes back to you trying to get to know them on a deeper level. And and everybody can appreciate that no matter what field that we're in. But I'd like to end with some lightning style questions for you and just to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level and get to know your learning. So what is something that you've tried lately, something creative that may or may not have worked, but something that you've been working through?
1: Uh, uh, Baseball or otherwise.
0: It it doesn't matter. Whatever. It could be on the field or off.
1: Uh, So, so. About a year ago, I moved into a a new house in New Jersey and I was looking for some kind of a piece to put on my wall right near my front door that kind of had an element of baseball to it, but was also a home and like nothing, I couldn't find anything that was perfect to what I wanted. And then I said, you know what, let me me just try to make it. So I, I created like this home plate out of wood, out of shiplap wood that's like about Literally twice the size of home plate, and I found a a home sign at a Hobby Lobby and I painted it. I put it all together, and I was this thing came out better than I had ever ever envisioned. That like I put it up on Twitter and LinkedIn because I was so proud because I've never done anything in woodworking before,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the replies I got for this thing were, "Hey, where did you buy that? I want it. I want." It. So apparently, I have uh, I have a skill in in woodworking that I developed, that I learned I had out of sheer luck last year. And then moving into this new house, I've tried a few different things and, and woodworking that my my nose is buried in YouTube trying to learn something new because I have an idea of something that I wanna do. And you know, 99 times out of a hundred, it's something that I won't even try, but every once in a while, she's says, oh, I could do that.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and that, Hidden that,
1: talent, I guess.
0: Those are really cool. I've actually seen those online. I saw that you posted a couple weeks ago <laughs> that you were open for business in the off season again. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. That,
1: Yeah, the shop's opening back up.
0: There you go. And so the next question is, is what is something that you guys do in practice or training that your players love? Like you show up one day and you're like, hey guys, we're doing this today. And they just, they love it. Like they explode. Like they're so excited to get to do that. What would that be?
1: Well, so there's a couple couple ways I I could answer this one. One thing that we're very conscious about and that I am very specific on this stuff is to make sure that no two of our days are the same. And that's one thing to say, like over the course of, you know, high school season, that might be, you know, two and a half, three months. But, you know, we're going from the middle of February until the end of September. And I think the ability to to find to be creative enough to keep things fresh is really impactful when it comes to getting guys energized and keeping guys focused on doing something new. And then specifically drill wise. Years ago, when I was when I was coaching in college, I was working at camp. I saw someone come up with this team drill. He called it Turbo Pepper, where he would you know basically have a soft. Someone would soft toss him a ball. He'd pull a ball to third base and then soft toss. He soft toss the ball and hit a fungo to short. Then he'd go around the field, and I wound up taking a variation of that when I was you know back in my infield days, where I would actually do that multiple reps up to eight, nine, ten with one player and it actually it's you know not just to have fun but it actually helps develop the pre-pitch getting guys on the balls of their feet first step quickness and just by nature of the pace of the drill guys absolutely love it the guys who really get into it like you know we've had got like Sam Travis is a guy who's been up and down the big leagues the last 3 or 4 years and when when he was on the minor league side and we did this we would do it as like an early work drill before the start of the day before guys even stretched and before we even stretched this dude was absolutely filthy because he was diving all over the place so sometimes you know you got guys that are really into it by nature of it's a challenging drill with a lot of energy and it's high paced. and some guys <laughs> some guys definitely do not like that drill because it is a high-paced challenging drill that has some failure to it as well
0: no I love that and, and anytime <laughs> anytime we can get them to like any sort of drill I mean it, it, it's not only going to help with their retention but it's going to help them have fun and and I really like that you guys switch it up every other day, too, because, man, it's I can only imagine playing 150 games a year or 162 games a year. And it's just it's, it's a grind. So anytime you can switch it up, I, I definitely I'm, I'm right there with you. The next question is, is something that my wife and I, we do these table discussions because we both teach. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to get better at asking like really good questions and getting to know each other on a deeper level, even though we've been together for 10 years. So, I developed this question based on that, but it's what is something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about?
1: This is actually a good one because there are some semantics involved, but it is actually a little bit of a different approach where I would venture to say that the majority of teams that are out there on day 1 when they have their first team meeting, they go over the team rules of, you know, here's a list of things that you that you can't do. And I don't know where I heard this, I didn't come up with it on my own. I came up with it, you know, just like everything else we do in coaching from somebody else. And I put my own twist on it where instead of having team rules, my first year as a manager, I created what I called team standards. So I always looked at rules as like a list of things that you can't do that you're trying to put fear in your players. Hey, can't do this. You can't do that. Whereas I looked at standards as things that guys can live up to. You can live live up to our standard. And it started with three things where it was like, be early, be respectful, and be professional. And then I added over the years, be better than my bad. And the last one was be who you are and do what you do. Mm -hmm. So for my six years of managing team, I actually managed a team with no rules. I literally said, we do not have any rules on this team, but we do have a standard of uh, expectation that when you don't live up to it, then there are, you know, there's some accountability that comes with. it. So I guess you could say many coaches would disagree with having a team that did not have any rules, but it just, you know, kind of putting it in a little bit of a different light and challenging guys to be able to do stuff every day as opposed to what they can.
0: Definitely. I love that. And I think you've posted that on social media before, right?
1: Yeah, but I've done that multiple times and people love to be better than my bad one as well.
0: Oh yeah, 100%. All right, last one. If we came and watched you uh, train players or we came and watched you in in practice or in a coaching setting, what would be three things that you think that we would notice from you or from your practices?
1: You would see, without question, energy. Energy and passion behind whatever it was we were doing. You know, I'm I'm a true believer that A team is going to take on the personality of its coach. And, you know, just by nature, like when I'm on a baseball field, I have a ton of energy and I've seen players kind of feed off of that. At the same token, I've seen players who have been around, you know, low motor guys and not to say that a low motor guy can't be a great coach, but as a group, sometimes like they do take on that personality as well, but there's definitely an energy and passion behind what we do. There is a constant connection not just between coach and player, but also between, between coaches, because I also believe that when there are rifts on a coaching staff, players are able, players are perceptive and they pick that up. So trying to build connection. And a lot of times that's, you know, that might look like roaming around in the outfield during batting practice. Like I'm just talking to players, which is literally what I'm doing. Sometimes often not even anything about baseball. And over time, a lot of this stuff is just, our success is a byproduct of the amount of time that we're able to spend with guys. And, you know, when you were able to build relationships, you are able to impact guys beyond, beyond measure. And probably the last thing that you, you would see is some really, really, really good players that are fun to watch uh, and they get us energized to go out and do our jobs every day.
0: I love that. Well, Darren, I, I think you're officially off the hook. And is uh, if, ah. if if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you and just, you know pick your brain i know you've got some uh, different outlets on social media do you mind sharing those with us
1: yeah uh, so uh, twitter's probably my my most consistent thing that i do on social media and you could find me at coach your kids i write a weekly blo- or a, a monthly blog now uh, with usa baseball that's tagged fundamental friday or fundamental skills friday i believe mm-hmm. it's called now i'm on linkedin and i post various articles on there you know i write for inside pitch magazine and every single uh ABCA member gets as a part of their ABCA membership so i you know i'm I'm branched out all over the place but uh you know i've been i've been very fortunate to wear a number of different hats in the game from you know from playing in college and professionally to being a college recruiting coordinator to now you know having had three or four different roles here uh, with the Red Sox and you know i am a byproduct of people who have shared their love and knowledge of the game with me and you know, I feel like it's our our duty as you know, a coach today or players today, to you know, to pay it forward to the next generation, to continue to uh, push the game forward, and make it better and make it enjoyable, and, and that's something I you know, I absolutely do, and and you're doing as well, just just with this podcast. So, you know, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to be on here, and you know, you're you're pushing the game forward as as, as much as anyone by the reach that this podcast has.
0: Well, Darren, I appreciate that. And again, I just want to say thank you for being on the show. And uh, I would ask you if there's anything else that you'd like to share, but that was a pretty good, pretty good ending.
1: <laughs> no, man, we, we, we covered a lot and it's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which could include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.